This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later today, we'll talk with Greil Marcus. He's got a new book out. It's about the Great Gatsby and its place in American culture and American life. Greel, of course, has written many books, starting with the classic Mystery Train and including Lipstick Traces. His new book is titled Under the Red, White, and Blue, Patriotism, Disenchantment, and the Stubborn Myth of the Great Gatsby. But first, today we want to think about the future after the coronavirus has passed. What is the possible future, the likely future for working people and the labor movement? What should our political priorities be? Harold Meyerson has been thinking about that. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, for starters, let's admit there's a lot we don't know about what the future holds for American workers. We don't know when the so-called non-essential businesses will reopen. We don't know how many businesses will go broke or how many will bring back just part of their workforce, maybe at half time or half pay. Seems like retail has been permanently damaged, and a lot of small businesses will never come back. And we don't know how long the cycle will last, how long unemployment will lead to underconsumption, which will lead to underproduction, which will lead to still more and continuing unemployment. First question here is about high unemployment and economic depression. Usually that hurts working class organizing and militants, or, or does it? Well, it, it usually does, except when it doesn't. And the great exception is the 1930s. But even in the 1930s, it took a combination of really radical action by uh, some worker activists, not the established leadership of unions, but the people who sat down in factories or even shut down your hometown of Minneapolis or St. Paul, whichever it is, uh, and, uh, and San Francisco and general strikes. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, it really required the labor actions of the New Deal, uh, in particular, uh, basically legalizing collective bargaining. And it was the one-two double whammy of, of those that, that produced the labor upsurge of the 1930s. And we're going to need a similar double whammy uh, today. I, I should also add one other factor, which gets back to the other stuff you were talking about. And that factor is the level of unemployment. And it's not usually noted by historians, at least it's noted, but it's not really linked, that the, the fact that the major labor mobilizations and growth of unions came at a moment when the New Deal's public employment program, the Works Progress Administration, the famous WPA, was employing millions of people, which actually did create um, a, a, some level of economic recovery uh, and created a little more sense of job security for workers willing to stick their necks out by uh, going on strike. And so uh, it, it takes a combination of a lot of factors uh, for labor to uh, advance in, in this kind of economy. The, the flip side of that, though, I should say, is on the issue of worker safety, we've seen hundreds of worker, you know, wildcat strikes, walkouts, what have you, 
since the uh, uh, coronavirus began by uh, essential workers who, you know, are essential and don't want to be disposable. We haven't had this situation before where workers are, some workers are being hailed as essential. And, but as you say, they're also being treated as disposable. That has to have a consciousness raising effect. Well, it clearly has had a consciousness-raising effect, as has general levels of fear uh, among uh, the uh, essential workers who are really frontline workers, who are definitely putting themselves and their lives on the line. And <laughs> given the trajectory of germs, sometimes their families' lives as well. But I think it's also raised the public's consciousness. I mean, the kind of workers we're talking about, uh, gig workers, delivery workers, supermarket employees, uh, healthcare aides, uh, you name it, um, have been politically invisible, you know, for a very long time, if not more accurately, I should say, forever. Uh, they're not politically invisible now, nor are, you know, the millions of workers who uh, have lost their jobs altogether, of 30, more than... 30, probably about 35 million of whom are, are uh, file for unemployment. And, and so there, there's a kind of, I think, a bit of a shift in the uh, political economic zeitgeist that also favors uh, the ability of these workers to, uh, to mobilize. And of course, all of this comes at the conclusion of a decade when the issue of economic inequality uh, has become uh, much more visible, much more salient than it's, than it's been almost since the first years of the 20th century. Uh, and uh, among uh, democratic capital D circles, the role that deunionization has played in the rise of economic inequality and the uh, uh, shifting political alignments of much of the white working class uh, all of this has made an impact even on Democratic elected officials who were much, much slower than Republicans to understand the political effects of uh, deunionization. Let's talk just for another minute here about this, the, con the, <clears throat> the, the current <clears throat> definition of essential workers. On the one hand, there are skilled and unionized essential workers like the postal service, the sanitation workers, a lot of uh, state employees, uh, the drivers for UPS and, and FedEx. And on the other hand, there's the lowest level of workers are also now being defined as essential, the part-time fast food workers. As you said, the home health care workers who get minimum wage or, or below. This is an interesting, interesting combination to contrast with the workers who are not essential, who, of course, is everybody else. It is. It's, a, it's a, definitely a heterodox, uh, diverse group. Uh, the Prospect ran a, an interesting piece uh, on our website, www.prospect.org, over the weekend by labor historian Jake Rosenfeld, who's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, noting that, you know, when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle in 1906, um, meatpacking plants were like the worst places uh, on earth to be working. Uh, they were dangerous. They were unhealthy and uh, they were non-union. Uh, then, as he notes, the, uh, the packing house workers, who were a really terrific uh, union in many, many ways, 
uh, we're, we're able to unionize uh, um, most of the uh, uh, meatpacking plants uh, in the 1930s and 40s, raise the wages, set safety standards. It's still not, you know, it was never a great job, but it was a lot better. And then with the deunionization we've seen, we're back to the jungle. We're back to 1906. And so you can be an essential worker and just how safe your, your work is, essential though it be, may depend on your collective power to negotiate terms that make it safer and make it better and make it more highly paid. Well, our topic today is, is the possible future for the working class and the labor movement. And of course, the prerequisite to all of this is Joe Biden uh, takes the oath of office on January 20th and a Democratic Senate is uh, sworn in. Let us assume for the moment that that is going to happen, which indeed is certainly possible, uh, what should our priorities be uh, in, in the prospect you list three? Let, let's go through them. What's, what's number one on your list of tasks facing the, the labor movement and progressives and the working class uh, on, on January 20th? Well, uh, lot, there are lots of things, and they, they fall into two categories. One is dealing with what will still be an economic depression. The other is dealing with uh, enhancing worker power. Now, as far as the depression goes, uh, I think there are, there are three things. There's the proposal which the uh, House Progressive Caucus has been advancing, which is to give employers, uh, you know, to, to directly federally subsidized keeping people on payroll, which, which would, you know, obviously reduce uh, unemployment. Uh, the, uh, the second is a very diverse uh, federal uh, investment public works program, but not just, not just infrastructure, though infrastructure, interestingly, at this point, gives the Democrats the ability to bring together two historically opposed to each other constituencies uh, by creating a massive Green New Deal infrastructure. Uh, you can uh, bridge the gap between the construction unions and uh, the, green, the Greens, the Green New Dealers. Uh, so that would be part of it. But also, you know, we have a different workforce and different needs. So we need just as big a uh, federal investment in what you could call the caring economy in healthcare, in childcare, in elder care. Uh, you know, and and uh, trillions of dollars there, as well as on, as on an infrastructure. The third element, uh, which is a, a bone of contention right now between the Republicans and Democrats, is aid to uh, states and cities and counties. Uh, back in two thousand, the end of two thousand nine, I did a piece for the Prospect looking at the effect of the uh, Obama stimulus package, which was $787 billion that the federal government injected into the economy to bolster it. But I also calculated the level of budget cuts uh, by uh, state, county, and city governments, which was taking money uh, out of the economy that was reducing the stimulus. And when you put those two together, the value of the uh, $787 billion stimulus was reduced by more than 60%. So, you know, if you want an economic recovery, you have got to enable, you know, uh, the local governments and state governments to avoid decimating, uh, decimating their spending. And that means 
uh, federal aid. That's the only uh, that's the only way to, uh, you can go there. So those are three priorities for Biden. And then let's talk a little little more detail about those three. If you just tuned in, I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. We're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect, and we're talking about the uncertain future for workers after the coronavirus. The first one is government directly appropriates funds to employers to keep workers on the payroll. Uh, we already have, in effect, the, the PPP program, uh, at least for eight weeks. There's been a lot of uh, problems, shall we call it, a lot of exposés, of which the American prospect has done an important part in, in, in critiquing. But is, is your idea is to continue the, the PPP, or do we need something bigger or different or something? Well, I think we need something bigger and different, but, you know, since you've already established one, uh, you know, it's not a, a, a sudden shock. You phase, you phase one out. The, the, you, you do whatever uh, basically benefits uh, America's workers more, and particularly vulnerable uh, are, uh, are low-wage workers. I saw a statistic today that said among uh, workers whose annual incomes were $40,000 or less, uh, the unemployment, uh, 39% had filed for unemployment. That's oh. huge. Oh. And then your second one is a, a massive program of direct public employment. I have to say, this is something that you and I have been talking about on this program for years. Uh, it's one of your, your, you're kind of an expert on the history of, of direct public employment in the New Deal. How many jobs did they create in how much time? Remind us about that wonderful figure. Well, the first, uh, uh, the first uh, go-round of this before the WPA was a program called the CWA that uh, Harry Hopkins uh, convinced Franklin Roosevelt to establish in the winter, his first winter in office of 1933-1934, and they were able to put, I'm trying to remember, something like 4 million people created jobs for 4 million people within 60 days. And that was in a country of 125 million people. So about a third, you know, today that would be more than 10 million people. Uh, uh, you know, it was an, it, and it, it was a, a program that was free of corruption. Um, Republicans investigated. They didn't find anything. You know, I mean, it, it was somewhat different circumstances. You, you could put people to work with picks and shovels then, uh, not so much now, but Lord knows there is plenty to do. Uh, so do you imagine it would be possible to have uh, direct public employment on that scale now, next year? Well, I think if you're talking about a Green New Deal, which requires uh, uh, weatherizing and putting solar facilities all over the place, and if you're talking about a caring uh, uh, investment in uh, elder care, in child care, and, 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 and more in public health, you know, there might have to be longer training periods. You didn't need a training period for pick and shovel work. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think the potential is there. And I think the necessity, perhaps even more important, the necessity is there. And then your third point is, 
A massive program of federal funding to support state and local governments. Now, I can see this will directly employ public employees. This is, you know, the DMV clerks, the librarians, the sanitation workers, state tax department, and so on. But uh, does that have any effect on the millions of wage workers who are not government employees? Sure it does. First, in sort of general quality of life issues, uh, you know, it took many years for public school systems to get back to where they were after the crash of 2008. So it had a major effect on on kids' educations. Uh, Secondly, look, there are, you know, many tens of millions of public employees in the United States. And if they're not in the workforce, that is a drag on overall uh, buying power, overall consumption, which is a drag on overall production, et cetera, et cetera. Bottom line, if you have 10% unemployment, whether it's private sector or public sector, uh, the economy uh, doesn't chug along at a very good, uh, very good rate. And this also could, uh, could affect, should affect, uh, if there's federal support for state and local governments, this should enable it, make it possible for them to avoid increasing state income taxes, in increasing property taxes, increasing sales taxes, and that affects everybody. It sure does. So, you know, I mean, I think it's a win-win uh, unless you are a right-wing ideologue who simply doesn't want any government to function. So then you said there's a second area of strengthening worker organizations and workers' ability to organize, which of course was a crucial part of the New Deal era, as you have said, what do you imagine we need uh, right now, next year? Well, you know, uh, it, it didn't get a lot of attention, but the, the House, uh, on a more or less party-line vote, passed a legislation in February called the PRO Act, uh, uh, which, which is uh, promoting organizing, and it went well beyond the uh, card check provisions that Democrats have been trying to get for decades. Uh, it creates that, but, but, but it also uh, includes uh, mislabeled employees, uh, gig employees under uh, labor law. It uh, really uh, creates uh, compulsory arbitration if management refuses to come to the table. Uh, it it uh, allows uh, even possibly for some sectoral bargaining if uh, uh, a sector can be organized. Uh, it and and it creates real penalties which have never existed uh, when companies um, and managements violate the National Labor Relations Act. And I should point out, you know, all, all because of the salience of this issue growing generally even before the coronavirus. All of the Democratic presidential candidates uh, in 2019 going into 2020 had pretty ambitious labor planks in their platforms. And Joe Biden uh, actually went beyond uh, some of the PRO Act. He said not only should companies be uh, fined real money for violating labor law, but the CEOs of the company should personally be fined real money. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, there's movement there. Uh, and, and you need movement there because, you know, the paradox of what we've seen is because it can, they can mobilize public opinion, unions have been able to achieve some things legislatively at the state and local level. I think the paradigmatic case here is SEIU's Fight for 15 in the Union, which has managed to get the minimum wage raised over time incrementally 
to $15 in California, in New York State, in a whole host of cities, and lesser, lesser amounts, but still significant wage increases in a lot of other states and cities. Uh, but they haven't been able to organize a single member of, of, of this, the group that's affected by this, like in fast foods in particular, because that, that's preempted by the federal government and federal labor law is, is completely dysfunctional. And, and so imagine if there were no SEIU there, they wouldn't even have been able to get these uh, legislative uh, wage hikes at the, at the state and local level. So you need you need to have organized workers, and, and that's going to be up to the federal government, assuming, which is a big assumption, that the Democrats uh, win in 2020. And what's your assessment of, of the Democratic Party and its current divide between the, the Wall Street, Silicon Valley axis as opposed to the uh, insurgent Bernie forces, you know, our people? Well, it's a real divide. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the polling, uh, there isn't much support in the rank and file of the party, and, and not simply the Bernie Warren people, but uh, the rest of the Democrats, too, for, for Wall Street-esque priorities. I mean, even, even as Biden was sweeping the latter set of primaries, uh, in every state where there was exit polling, uh, the Democratic voters uh, preferred Medicare for all. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I think the, the most sort of interesting development uh, that needs to be watched is how this plays out in the campaign and the mind of one Joe Biden. And uh, uh, my, my partner in crime at the Prospect, Bob Kuttner, has a good piece up online today on the Prospect website, www.prospect.org. Uh, on this very subject and, and, and you know, who, what it means that Biden has these task forces uh, that are a combination of his people and Bernie Sanders people. Uh, and, you know, this is the contested terrain and we'll have to see how this plays out and, and do our darndest to make sure it plays out in a good direction. Harold Meyerson, he wrote about the uncertain future for workers after the virus for the new issue of The American Prospect. You can read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk with Griel Marcus. He's got a new book out. It's about the great Gatsby and its place in our culture and our lives. Griel, of course, has written many books, starting with the classic Mystery Train and including Lipstick Traces. He's also the editor of A New Literary History of America, and his legendary column, Real Life Rock, now appears in the L.A. Review of Books. His new book is Under the Red, White, and Blue, Patriotism, Disenchantment, and the Stubborn Myth of the Great Gatsby. We reached him today at home in Oakland. Greel, welcome back. Great to be with you again. Well, you open your book with a New York Times front page story about a reissue of the paperback of the Great Gatsby in 2013. Actually, two reissues of the paperback. Tell us about that. 
Well, this was a wonderful story by a writer named Julie Bosman. And it was a couple of weeks before the Baz Luhrmann um, movie of The Great Gatsby came out, the fourth movie adaptation, and the first since the 1974 Robert Redford version. And Baz Luhrmann was known as a, uh, an over-the-top, spectacular, um, time-traveling, uh, convention-disrespecting director. He'd already, uh, to some people's minds, absolutely savaged Moulin Rouge. Um, I know a lot of people who loved it, me included. Um, and here he was taking on the great Gatsby, an Australian director, kind of, and he, he was already being portrayed before people had seen the movie as like some kind of foreign sex trafficker <laughs> kidnapping the, the flower of American democracy and, and was going to lay waste to an American classic. Anyway, there were uh, two new editions of The Great Gatsby. One was a movie tie-in. It showed Leonardo DiCaprio, who played Gatsby, and Nick... Um, Toby Maguire, who played Nick Carraway, and um, and all the other people um, playing the characters on the cover, as you would do with a movie tie-in issue uh, edition. And then um, there was the original cover of The Great Gatsby, which is kind of a spooky eyes painting. They were both tied to the movie. They were both issued because there was a new movie out. There's going to be great, even more interest in The Great Gatsby than usual. You know, it sells half a million copies a year, mostly wow. the high school class adaptations. But in any case, this story, uh, the, the reporter was writing about which stores were carrying which edition. Walmart was only carrying the Leonardo DiCaprio edition. Um, and she went down to, um, yeah, McNally Jackson um, in Greenwich Village, um, you know, a beloved independent bookstore in New York. And she went there and talked to a book buyer who was, you know, just outraged at the idea that there would even be um, – <laughs> an edition with movie stars on the cover. And the idea that his store would ever carry it, you know, we'd never do that. We'd never, you know, this, this is a classic and people don't want it messed with, he said. And clearly the writer picked up something in his tone that she found kind of creepy. And she said, well, do you think it, it would be respectable to be seen reading the book with the with Leonardo DiCaprio on the cover on the subway. And the guy took the bait. He said, oh, you know, anyone who's doing that should be absolutely ashamed of themselves. <laughs> and I thought, you know, what are we talking about? Like, it's better not to read the book at all than to read it with the wrong cover. So you've always been interested in high and low and... Your jacket copy has a wonderful phrase. It says, The Great Gatsby uh, is an enthralling parable or cheap metaphor of the American experiment. Uh, let's talk about the book as a cheap metaphor. Gee, I tried, <laughs> I tried my best to stay away from the temptations that The Great Gatsby always offers a reader, which is to... Um, 
read it through the prism of one's own time and find analogous characters uh, all around you. In other words, you, you know, when, when Trump was elected, all kinds of people, George Will was one of them, compared him to um, a Gatsby figure. And it, the, the term is usually, you know, applied to somebody who, who is a, a social climber, uh, who has mon- ill-gotten uh, money, um, who doesn't know the value of anything, uh, who is vulgar, who is not somebody, you know, you'd really want to be around, um, which is, of course, you know, not the picture that you get in the book at all. The, the picture in the book is both, you know, kind of not there at all and, and many dimensional at the same time. Um, fewer people wonder, well, who, who is the Nick character? The Nick character is the reader. The Nick character is you. It's me. It's anyone who is caught up in the story and is retelling it to um, themselves as they go along. So I tried to stay away from that. I tried to say what kind of story is being told here and why is this story still alive? That was the real question. Why is somebody like Baz Luhrmann wanting to make a movie of this almost 100-year-old book that's been filmed again and again. Why is this still alive? And I thought, well, what, is, what has kept the book alive for almost a century? And it seemed to me that what it was was the way people turn their own personal fascination with the book and their own sense of its lack of resolution, even though Gatsby dies. We don't know anything about what happens to Nick Carraway in the rest of his life. We, we know we can imagine what happens to um, Tom and Daisy. You know, they go on and live their lives out as rich cigarettes. But um, what has kept this book alive? And what it was, it seemed to me, was people again and again and again, decade upon decade upon decade, taking this story as their own, rewriting it, restaging it, doing damage to it, distorting it, parodying it, mocking it, falling in love with it, and saying, I have to do something with this. I have to write a comic strip. I have to write a novel. I have to make a movie. I have to some way say, this story isn't finished. I I'm going to at least go a step farther into this story. And that's what Ross MacDonald did, the great mystery writer, um, the great writer of, of L.A. Mysteries. He, he wrote that book again and again and again. And he said so. He said, you know, from the Galton case on, all I'm trying to do is mm-hmm. rewrite The Great Gatsby. Um, Raymond Chandler who was both before McDonald and a contemporary of his, was fascinated by the book. He said at one point in the 40s, he said, you know, it's a little piece of pure art. And he said, and there's such a difference between the real thing and shelves. And he named half a dozen writers, none of whom are remembered today. <laughs> okay. You and I have no idea who these people are. 
um, but who were all, you know, revered and honored and best-selling writers in the 1940s, Chandler wanted a chance to write the movie, the movie that was made in 1949 with Alan Ladd. He thought he had a chance to do that <laughs> script, which he didn't get. Finally, he, he decided he had to rewrite the novel. He had to bring these characters to life again. He had to show that these characters are archetypes, that they're all around us, that they reappear in every generation. And so he wrote The Long Goodbye in 1953. Um, there is, by the way, in Stillwater, Minnesota, um, there is a coffee shop with a beautiful sign that says The Long Goodbye hanging <laughs> over the main street. <laughs> I have to interrupt here about you brought up Donald Trump. It took about less than five minutes to get to Donald Trump. It, and uh, you're right. Of course, somebody had to call Donald Trump a gats before our time. It turns out that was George Will. When I read that in your book, it really stopped me. Isn't isn't Donald Trump a lot more like Tom Buchanan, the cruel, aggressive, hulking racist? Daisy tells him, you're revolting. Doesn't George Will have this backwards? Of course he has it backwards. <laughs> um, you know, to realize that Tom Buchanan is an American type, is someone that we will always meet, we will always have to deal with, run away from. Um, boil over with anger and rage at that this kind of character will always be there. Yeah. Um, I say, you know, uh, Trump was always Tom. Mm. Uh, the difference is, as someone pointed out to me just recently is that despite being born into wealth and despite essentially faking great wealth, uh, throughout his life, um, he, he has always felt inferior. He has always felt excluded. He has always felt that people looked down on him. Um, whereas Tom Buchanan was born into enormous money yeah. and probably is one of the 10 richest people in the entire country in, in the world of the, of the book <laughs> itself. Um, I don't think that difference is very meaningful. Um, the, the, the differences between um, real people and phony people, um, real people like Donald Trump and phony people like us. If you just tuned in, I'm John Wiener, and this is Trump Watch on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. And we're speaking with Griel Marcus. He's got a new book out. It's called Under the Red, White, and Blue, Patriotism, Disenchantment, and the Stubborn Myth of the Great Gatsby. The real pleasure of this book is the dizzying array you find of examples of how Gatsby is everywhere. One of my favorites was uh, Andy Kaufman reading Gatsby on Saturday Night Live in 1978. Tell us how that went. So here comes Andy Kaufman. He's been on Saturday Night Live at that point many times. He's, he's just a, he's a big favorite. And he comes on and, and everybody knows him and he gets great applause and he's wearing this, you know, ridiculously formal outfit and he's speaking in his phony British accent and everything is very high toned. Um, 
and you think he's about to give you a lecture on Beethoven or something. And instead he says that there are 20 minutes left in the show. And he was told that since, you know, he, he's such a regular and he's so popular, they say, you do whatever you want. And so he tries to figure out what to do. And he, he, he can't really decide. And then he notices a book lying around on a table somewhere. And he picks it up. And it's a copy of The Great Gatsby. So he thinks, well, you know, people say this is the greatest novel, uh, greatest American novel there is. I don't really agree with that. But I thought maybe, you know, we could read it and then have a discussion about it. Maybe <laughs> to point out things that I've missed about, you know, why it's supposed to be so great. So he starts reading it. And within lines, people, first they're laughing at, at what a ludicrous thing this is. And also, you realize as he reads it, the opening of the book is really boring. <laughs> just nothing is happening. You know, in my younger days, and my father once gave me advice, and this, this, this kind of stuff, and, you know, why, why am I reading this? Well, that why am I hearing this? That comes up instantly within mm -hmm. seconds. And people are, first they're laughing, then they're booing, then they're catcalling. And he keeps reading. And it gets more boring and it gets more stilted. And people, you know, really, this is a really great joke. But then it keeps going. He's reading for less than a minute and it seems like he's been doing it for hours. And people begin to get really upset. And the anger, uh, th that begins to flow out of the crowd is just inescapable. And Andy Kaufman goes into this acting. This is very serious. It's very important. You have to behave yourselves. And he keeps trying to read the book and the book gets worse as he goes on. And, you know, we're not even out of the first page. And the, the, the anger and the loathing and the hatred coming from the audience is just overwhelming. It, it's hard to listen to. You know, it's like, yes, it's a joke, and everybody's in on the joke, but it's not funny anymore. Stop. And he goes through a whole routine, you know, about how you people have to learn manners, and he threatens to leave, and he stomps off, and then he comes back, and finally he says, you know, I, I just don't understand you people. You have no respect for anything. And by this time, he's read enough. He's read maybe a page and a half of the book. It's actually starting to get interesting as he's reading it. But people aren't hearing any of this. And finally, he says, okay, I've got this record here. And there's a phonograph. I've got this record here. I could keep reading the book or I could play the record. And the record, people are screaming, record, record. Let us out of this Gatsby prison. And so he puts on the record, and it's him reading from The Great Gatsby, and that's the end of the skit. <laughs> um, and John uh, Collis, a theater director in New York, an aspiring theater director, saw the show, like so many of us of a certain age saw that show, and he sort of wondered, and I kept, uh, the idea kept with him for many, many years, what if you could really do it? What if you could just stand up and read the whole book? And indeed, you segue then to something I didn't know anything about, a theater piece where they do read the entire novel. It takes 
Six hours. It was actually performed. It's called Gats. What was that like? Well, it, th- this is a play that he, that Collis developed. He uh, started rehearsing it with a little company in Brooklyn in, in a dingy office, which was only space they could find. And they realized, this is a great setting. Let's just make it a bunch of office workers in this dingy office. And a guy is sitting at his desk and he's trying to start his computer and the computer won't start. And so a person in the office makes a call for a repairman. While he's waiting for the repairman, he opens up uh, a box on his desk and it's got a Rolodex and stuff. And But there's also a, cap, a copy of The Great Gatsby and he picks it up and he just starts reading it out loud just to kill the time until the repairman comes. And six hours later, after the various office workers have turned into the various characters in the book and recite their own dialogue, while um, Scott Shepard, the actor who ultimately will turn into Nick Carraway, but now is just an office worker, reading, reading out loud from the great Gatsby's holding in his left hand for six hours, there's a break in the middle. He just keeps reading it as people all around him become the various characters. And, you know, some of it is slapstick. Some of it is kind of silly. Um, some of it is jarring and, and displacing. Tom Buchanan is played by a working class uh, guy with a load of keys on his, on his belt and, you know, speaking in, in, a, in a Bronx accent. Um, and, and, and you struggle to put the character together with this person, but it goes for six hours. Not a word is left out. And it begins to bring this story down to earth. It utterly strips off all of the clothes and all of the baggage of, of celebration and renown that the book has you know, brought to itself over time. And it, it simply becomes about these people. And it becomes about the narrator far more um, than, than the narrator holds a place in the book. And I think that's the trajectory um, that the story has taken across the century, that you find out that through all these different adaptations and parodies uh, and distortions, whether they're in movies, whether they're in this you know, dramatic, dramatic reading, uh, Gats, which had its premiere at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis in 2000. It is the, it is the emergence of Nick Carraway, of the reader, of the narrator, of the person who is trying to figure out this mysterious character who emerges as the central character. Um, and that is a great democratic opening. And that spirit was there in the book all along. Uh, and people said to Fitzgerald after the book came out, they said, can't we have more about Nick? And one of his friends said, he was a great Gatsby too. He just didn't understand it. Um, and, and so people are constantly trying to rescue Nick, the narrator, the, the everyman, the person who stands in for the reader, trying to rescue him from the fact that Fitzgerald didn't quite know what to do with him. 
Um, in other words, it is a democratic spirit that says we all have the right to rewrite this book. Not only that, we have the obligation. Last question. Your title, Under the Red, White, and Blue, where did you get that? I was reading collections of uh, Fitzgerald's letters, and he was a wonderful letter writer. You can read these collections endlessly. You can read them and read them and read them well. In one, there was uh, a photocopy of a telegram that Fitzgerald had sent from Paris a month before the book was due to come out in March of 1925. The book came out in April to his publisher saying, I've just got this great idea. Let's call the book Under the Red, White, and Blue. He actually said, crazy about the title, Under the Red, White, and Blue. What would the delay be? And the publisher says, no, it's too late. Anyway, The Great Gatsby is much better. And he writes back and says, yeah, yeah, I guess so. But I love the idea of Under the Red, White, and Blue, not just because Fitzgerald was named after a distant cousin, Francis Scott Key. Francis was Fitzgerald's first name, um, who wrote the national anthem. But the idea of under the flag, you know, not above the flag or with the flag or in the flag, but the flag is something that, that hovers over us, that is both an inspiration and a kind of shroud that darkens the sky. We are under this enormous flag and the sun is blotted out. God knows what was going through his mind, but he wanted to change the title of the last minute. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And luckily, through the intervention of a friend, we were able to get a copy of that cablegram and put it on the first page of the book. Creel Marcus, his new book is Under the Red, White, and Blue, Patriotism, Disenchantment, and the Stubborn Myth of the Great Gatsby. Griel, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. I have to write another book so we can do this again. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.